Good morning again. It's uh, week five, I think, in this incredible series that we've been walking through life hacks in the book of James. And we've been walking through this uh, picture that James, as kind of the great pastor in the second phase of his life, is communicating to the early church some of these incredible keys for how church family should interact with one another. How do we do community right? What does it look like to be part of the family of God? And there's so many incredible keys in there. And this week, he's going to walk into uh, this thing that is <laughs> pretty, pretty fun. He his tone is going to change, and I love that his tone uh, changes in here because he's going to be dealing with an issue that all of us deal with. We can guarantee that we're all going to deal with it because Jesus, the perfect human, had to deal with this. We're talking about temptation. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the word temptation. It's probably different for each of you, but I was trying to think of one of the first times I can remember after I started a relationship with Jesus that I dealt with temptation. Because before I knew Jesus, I dealt with temptation like this. Hmm, can I get away with it? Doing it, right? That, that's how I dealt with temptation before I knew Jesus. Temptation was simply a pros and cons. Would I get in trouble? Could I get away with it? Would I get caught? But suddenly I have this relationship with Jesus and something new has happened. Suddenly there's a, a new sense of who I am and who Jesus is and who I'm supposed to be. And there's a new sense of moral depth in me that has come out of getting to know my father in heaven. But temptation did not go away. So the year's 1994. It was a good year for me with temptation. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that in 1994, I went to uh, a missions trip down in uh, Tijuana, Mexico, and also LA. And some of you will remember a story involving me, Disneyland, and a small item theft. If you don't know that story, nothing happened. Just look away. <laughs> However, that was not the only temptation that I fa faced that year. You see, um, <laughs> All right, can we make a deal here? My wife's and kids. This is not a story that she necessarily wants me to revisit, and I don't fully have permission, so I'm facing a temptation right here, but I'm going to tell you the story. It's a good one. <laughs> We're dating. We started dating in high school. We were high school sweethearts. We're that disgusting story of ninth graders that fell in love and with Jesus' help made it all the way to the end of the race. And so we've just completed ninth grade. It's summer, and we're on this missions trip. And our youth pastor tells us, we've never been out of the country before. He says, listen, you're going into another culture. And when you go into this other culture, things are going to be different. There's going to be some expectations that we have of your behavior that we don't necessarily have in our culture. And one of those things, couples, I'm looking at you, is that we expect you to behave a certain way when we leave the country out of respect for their culture. Now, if I was older than 15, this might have got into my brain correctly. What I heard was, if I'm going to kiss my girlfriend, I'm going to have to sneak. <laughs> so we get down to Mexico, which, by the way, I believe we're going to Mexico next year. We're taking a group. We want to build a house. If you want to go with us, we'd love to have you. That's going to be coming out uh, in the fall. We'll let you know what's going on. Uh, we're going to make some difference in some people's lives. We're going to attack uh, this community and global opportunity for us to just reach people who need the love of Jesus. There's a plug. However, now I'm going to totally defile that with a story. <laughs> we're going to Mexico, and there's this base in Tijuana that we're going to stay at as our base of operations, and then we're going to go and do ministry in the communities and in the local churches. Well, there's a second couple that's on the trip with us, and they're our really good friends. And so we devise a plan, and here's our plan. We're going to alternate nights having a crisis so that it absorbs all the attention of the adults that are on the trip so that the other couple could get their goodnight kiss in while we're on the event. <laughs> Temptation, right? And I, and, I, and I remember just thinking, this is how to overcome temptation, the way to overcome a boundary that I'm not supposed to cross is to figure out the most clever way to do the thing I want to do anyways, and just not get caught. Now, that's a ninth graders going into 10th graders mentality on temptation. Here's the problem. 
a lot of us carry that kind of thinking all the way through our lives when it comes to things that we know we shouldn't do, shouldn't partake of. Our first thought is, will we get caught? And is there a workaround? As opposed to generally our first thought in Jesus should be, hey, is this good? Is it good for me? Does it honor God? But I didn't have that in me at all. So I won't say whether or not we executed that event or not. (laughs) But here's the problem with temptation. We all have weaknesses. You have weaknesses. I have weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. And temptation makes us be honest with ourselves. It makes us be honest with ourselves that though this temptation may not be your temptation, there is something that is a temptation for you. Your weaknesses might not be the same as mine. Maybe your temptation looks something like this. You're constantly tempted to spend money that you don't have. Maybe that's your temptation. Maybe your temptation looks something like this. You're constantly tempted to eat something that you shouldn't eat. Or you're tempted to pursue a relationship that you shouldn't. Or you're tempted to avoid confrontation. Or you're tempted to seek out every confrontation that you can. Maybe your temptation is using language that you shouldn't. Maybe your temptation is gossiping. I'm not sure what your temptation is. But we don't all have the same temptations, but we all face temptation. I'm certain in the gamut that I just threw out there, something pricked and you went, ooh, yeah, that's the one I have to think about. That's the one I have to deal with. So what's the answer? What's the life hack? What's Pastor James going to teach us this week about dealing with temptation? In a word, it's resistance. It's resistance. And resistance is a force such as friction that operates in the opposite direction of motion of a body and tends to prevent or slow down that body's motion. Now listen, James is going to tell us that the key to dealing with temptation is to move in the opposite direction and create resistance to that temptation. That sounds really easy until we start talking about our situations and we start talking about our lives and we start making it personal and we start connecting because then I start asking questions. I start negotiating. So who or what am I trying to resist? Pastor Mike, give me a definitive list of the things I need to resist. So I make sure I go in the opposite way of that. And we like to, we like to resist things like they're individual events where the scripture teaches us to resist things like they're categories. So we like to resist things like, here's the thing for me. Cheesecake is a kryptonite for me. If there's a cheesecake in the house, I'm going to eat that cheesecake. And here's how it's going to go. I'm going to get a piece of cheesecake, and I'm going to eat it, and I'll be like, oh, that's awesome. And I'm going to put the cheesecake away. Then I'm going to go back to that cheesecake with a fork. And I'm going to take just a little piece of that cheesecake. Then I'm going to look at it and go, my wife's going to recognize the fork marks on this cheesecake. So now I have to slice it again so that it looks right, so it doesn't look like I came in here and ate more cheesecake. Repeat, and then repeat, and then repeat till there's no more cheesecake. So it would be easy for me to say, I need to resist cheesecake. But then you put snickerdoodles in the house. (laughs) Snickerdoodles are also a kryptonite for me. If there are snickerdoodles in the house, guess who's eating those snickerdoodles? So the thing I need to resist isn't the individual thing that I'm dealing with, the thing I need to resist, come on now, is the idea, the principle, the greater thing. The thing I need to resist is something that's in me that wants to pursue the thing I know that isn't good for me. James is gonna teach us that the greatest battle, we're fighting a lot of battles, but the greatest battle perhaps that we're fighting is one that we're fighting with ourselves. I'm gonna show you um, a fun clip. It's from a movie uh, called Creed. It's not very long. If you don't know the movie, you might know the Rocky movies. It's like the latest of the Rocky movies. And the premise is this young man is the son of uh, Apollo Creed uh, who passed away in the ring. And he's kind of following in his father's footsteps even though he didn't know his father. And he's getting involved in boxing, but he's never been trained. And so he meets up with Rocky and Rocky's giving him the basic lesson on how you learn to win a fight. And it goes a little something like this. All right, Donnie, get into your stance. Make a small target, turn sideways. Okay. 
You see this guy here staring back at you? Yeah. That's your toughest opponent. Every time you get into the ring, that's who you're going against. I believe that in boxing, and I do believe that in life. Okay? You throw a jab in the jaw. All right, one to the gut. Now, every time you punch this guy, what's he doing? He's throwing one back at him. That's right. So either you block it, slip it, or get out of the way. So. I'll leave you two alone for a while. Good luck. Sometimes the toughest opponent that we face when it comes to dealing with temptation is the one we see in the mirror. And we learn to train ourselves that when that temptation comes, we've got to block it, slip it, run, get out of the way. I love that. <clears throat> I oftentimes want to look at the things that I'm tempted at, to do and put the blame out somewhere else. Well, if this person didn't, then I wouldn't. And James is very strongly going to take us to our own heart, to a place of our own responsibility. As a matter of fact, before we get to James chapter 4, if you got your Bibles, you can open up. up. I'm going to be in the book of James in chapter 4. But before we get to James chapter 4, he, he actually uh, sells us something in James chapter 1 when he opens the whole conversation with the folks he's talking to, the Christians and the first generation and the Christians today. He says, listen, in James chapter 1, when tempted, verse 13, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Catch this in verse 14. He says, but each one, that's us, that's everyone, is tempted when by his own evil desires, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He says, it is your own desires within you. I'm the one that wants that cheesecake. I'm the one that wants them snickerdoodles. I'm the one who's facing that desire. It is not God's fault that cheesecake exists. And now I have some like existential argument with God that cheesecake exists. I'm the one who has to do that. And I love this picture when he says enticed, because the word for enticed there, it's literally a picture yeah, it's a, literally a picture of like a, an animal and a snare. That's what that word means. It snares an animal. It entices you. And he's saying you're enticed by yourself. You know that if you're trying to catch this particular animal, the thing you need is some cheese. Just like you know in yourself, the thing you are predisposed to be tempted to is whatever the thing that naturally entices you. So what is he saying? He's saying you've got to be careful that you don't get snared by the things that naturally might entice you. Now, this is a tricky thing for us to get a hold of. So let me give you another example from Teenage World. I've been a youth pastor, had been a youth pastor for almost 15 years, and I walked through uh, a lot of couples in their first dating relationships. Now, it's funny because I told you a story about an early dating relationship that I went all the way through to marriage. But let me just tell you something. As a 15-year youth pastor, most teenagers' first dating relationship is not the person they end up marrying. And so oftentimes I've had large groups of teenagers and pretty soon they're hanging out together. We're doing events together and something happens and I try to avoid it as much as possible and I try to tell them about cooties and all this stuff, but they fall for each other. And I end up being the guy, thank you mom and dad, who has to talk to them about boundaries in their dating relationship. I end up being the guy that has to have that conversation. And you would be flabbergasted at how many times I have sat down with 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, young adults, young people, and talk to them about just basic wisdom and boundaries in their dating relationship. If I had a dollar for every time I told someone, it's probably not a good idea for you and the person you're dating to go back into your room and close the door and listen to music. It's probably not a good idea. Things aren't going to go a way you think they're going to go unless you think they're going to go that way, and that's what you're trying to do. And that's, that's a whole other conversation. But I have to explain something. That's enticing. That's bait on the trap to ensnare you. So avoid doing that to yourself. Now push that forward into our lives wherever you're at today. And you know the thing that entices you. 
You know where your weakness is. You know if you should have another set of eyes when you're doing your financials, looking at things with you. You know if you shouldn't be someone who gets on the computer when no one else is around and doesn't have any checks in that system. You know the areas where you're most at risk. And James is saying each one is drug away and enticed by their own desires. He's saying each one puts themselves in their own scenario and walks right into their own trap that they set. It's pretty rough, but it's true. James is trying to coach us. He's trying to give us preparation. He's saying, don't start with the blame game. You know what the thing is that triggers you. You know that if that cheesecake is in the refrigerator, come on now, you need some accountability. You need to draw a line on that plate. Whatever it is you have to do so that you're not drawn away and enticed. And James says, indirectly, cheese catches a mouse. Be aware of what catches you. Be aware of what catches you. Be aware of what catches you. So we go to James chapter 4. And I love this section of his letter because his tone changes here. You got to remember, James is incredibly concerned with this community, this family of believers that have sprung up. He was someone who didn't believe in Jesus, even though Jesus was his biological half-brother. He wasn't an early adapter that Jesus was also the son of God, that Jesus was fully God. He wasn't a believer at all until he saw something incredible. He saw his brother die. He saw the death of his brother and he saw him on the other side of the grave resurrected and he becomes one of the most prolific preachers and teachers of the early church. And suddenly there's this volume of new believers in Jesus who are new believers like him. And he's starting to teach them what it means to live in community and he cares about community. And let's face it, can we just be honest? We got everybody here today kind of in, in one service, which is great, but church people can can manage to not get along. I haven't been to a church yet where there hasn't been some gossiping going on. I haven't been to a church yet where there haven't been some fights, some arguments, some quarrels, some tension points, some judgmental stuff going on. Why? Because we're just humans and we're all dealing with our own temptations and our own stuff. But James is looking out at this early church and he's talked about dealing with favoritism and not treating people differently. He's talked about uh, uh, having wisdom. He's talking about what it means to live in community and do it well. And suddenly his tone's about to change because he's gonna talk about dealing with temptation and fighting with one another. Now, I don't know about you, but in my community, my family, my most immediate family, I'm the guy who has to bring the law when everybody's fighting sometimes, right? And maybe you had to bring the law when someone's fighting. But there's a tone that changes. If I'm in one room and I hear the fight starting, I'll give them a chance to kind of work it out. I'll see where the thing lands, right? I'll see if, uh, if someone does the right thing, if someone observes the golden rule, if someone is humble, if someone sacrifices, if someone doesn't uh, escalate it to the next. I'll give them a chance to do it. When it starts escalating at a certain level, I might shout around the corner, hey, like there's another set of ears here, guys. I see what's happening or I hear what's happening. I might give them a little bit of warning. But pretty soon, when the, when the temperature starts reaching a high fever pitch and it starts getting really intense, then I'll walk in the room. But I won't have the same tone as I had earlier. Now I'm postured up a little bit. Now I'm laying down the law a little bit. Now I'm saying, guys, that's not the way we do things here. We don't use that language or we don't hit our sister or we don't, you know, whatever the thing is. We don't pull, we don't push. That's not in this family, we don't do that this way. And my tone changes a little bit. Maybe I'm the only one. So you can see some of you are smiling and some of you are avoiding eye contact. That's perfect. James is doing the same thing. James is saying, hey guys, we've had a little talk about how we treat people based on stature and position. Now we got to talk a little bit about some fights that start breaking out among people who are in the same family. And his tone gets a little different here. And because his tone gets a little different here, this reads a little harsh. 
But I want you to understand, this is the pastor. This is James. This is kind of the, the father of this group, this movement. And he's talking to the kids in the family. And he's saying, guys, do this part right. That's not how we do it here. Own your peace in this. Stop playing the blame game. It goes a little something like this. James chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, he says, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's already starting. <laughs> he's, already, he's already getting escalated a little bit. Why are you guys bickering? Why are you guys fighting? Why are you guys getting angry? Why are you guys creating tension? You're supposed to be on the same team. You're supposed to be in the same family. You're supposed to be looking out for one another. You're supposed to want to lift the other person up. You're, the, the idea of, of sacrificial love is supposed to be a value in us. Whoever wants to be the greatest must be the servant of all. But when I see church people, I see a lot of fights. I see a lot of quarrels. I see a lot of bickering. Now, maybe you're here today and you haven't been in church for a while, and part of it's because of this. You've seen church people looking in from the outside and going, hey, they can't seem to get along. They can't seem to agree on things, and when they disagree, it's ugly. I don't like that. I got enough of that drama at work. I got enough of that drama in my own home. I got enough of that drama in my own experience. So why would I want that drama in my life? And you're right. And it's because we don't do what James is about to tell us to do. And some of us have been wounded because of some of these fights. And we're trying to understand what is going on here. And you haven't realized it's because someone just wasn't living what James is about to break down for us. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? He goes, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't they come from your own desires that battle with you? Now, that word desires there, it's hedun. He it's the word we get for hedonism. It's the same word that, that as hedonism. He says, don't the fights that you get into happen because you just want your way. You want whatever you can get. You want something that's for yourself. You just desire. And I love that he uses the term battle there. Some translations translate it as war that war within you. It's a military term. And he's saying, you amp up and go to war because of this hedonistic thing that's inside of you. Verse two, he says, you want something, but you don't get it. You want something, but you don't get it. Like, Why are you guys fighting? It's because you want something, but you don't get it. And look at the strength of this word. You kill and covet. Some translations translate that word kill. It's the same word murder. You murder and you covet. You kill. You end life and covet. Desire something that's not yours. That's two commandments. By the way, out of 10. He's like two out of 10 and you're not even worried about it. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. Hold that right there. You kill and covet. Now, I was reading and just trying to figure out, like, why does he say you kill? Is that actually happening in the early church? Were they literally killing each other for things that they want? And it's possible. It's quite possible. But we also know that James is the brother of Jesus, familiar with Jesus' teaching, would know that Jesus said, hey, you know what? When you kill someone in your thoughts and in your heart, it's the same thing as if you just murdered them. When you crush someone just in your core, Jesus is saying, once you've done that in your heart, it's the same effect on you as if you had done the action. If you let that linger inside of your heart. And maybe he's just talking about, come on, we have this tendency. I just, I just don't like that person. I just, they have something I want or do something the way I don't like it or aren't listening to me. And we just, we just kill them in our hearts. We just kill them. Or we covet, I wish I was the one who could play and sing guitar. I wish I was the one that got to talk. I wish I was the one that got to do the thing. I wish I was the one that got whatever the thing is in the family. I wish I had what they had. Oh, do we even have to start there? Someone drives in and they got a new vehicle and you're thinking, man, why did they get that? God, I've been serving you. Why are your blessing and provision on them? Why do they live where they live or have what they have or get what they get? And you start playing the comparison game. James is saying that shouldn't happen. But when it happens, you're the one initiating that in your core. 
And then I love this. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. That might be one of the biggest statements. There's gonna be some huge statements in here, but that might be one of the biggest statements that could get into your heart this weekend. Some of the things that you're dreaming about expecting, you don't have because you're not asking God. You know, the implication is that when you ask God, something could change. Do you know the incredible implication that when you pray, when you talk to God, something different might happen that what otherwise would have happened? Do you know what that means? That's crazy. That's incredible. There's actually the potential that you could interact with the creator of the universe and something might happen because of that. James is like, you're all tied up in your heart and you haven't even taken it to the person who has authority to provide for you. It's like, why would you do it that way? <laughs> the deepest implication is you just don't trust God's plan. You don't trust that God's in it. You don't trust that God will look out for you. You don't trust that you'll be okay. You feel like you got the short end of the stick somehow. And because of that, you're murdering folks, maybe literally, hopefully not, at least in your heart. And you're coveting. You're wanting the thing that they have. He says, that's what's going on in you. Verse three. Because the next thing is, uh, okay, so why doesn't this work every time that I ask God? I just get whatever I want. He goes, okay, well, when you ask, so assuming you do eventually get around to asking God, you don't receive. Because when you ask, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James wants to remind us that God's always been more interested in our heart condition than our stuff. And we connect those things. And he's saying, hey, you get frustrated you fight, you quarrel. It's because of an inner battle that's going on within you because you're not getting your way. You won't go to the Lord. And when you do go to the Lord, it looks ugly. It looks like, hey, I want Charlie's stuff. God, won't you make that happen for me? And God's like, that's not how this works. Do you seek me first? Do you seek the kingdom of heaven first? Then I unload the blessing and the provision. You don't seek Charlie's life or Charlie's stuff first. <laughs> Verse four, he goes, you adulterous people, <laughs> ouch. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Let's hold it right there for a second. That word envies also is translated in a lot of places, jealous. And James says, don't you know that when you let the world decide the things you should care about, when you let the values of the world decide what should get in your heart, it's just gonna create jealousy, tension, grumpiness, emotional baggage, weight. It's gonna build temptation. It's gonna lead to tension. It's gonna come out. And we know this happens. And the world's good at this. People make tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year figuring out how to give us a 15 to 30 second commercial to make us want something we didn't want before we saw that thing. The world's gifted at trying to teach us, hey, you should want this. You didn't even know it existed until 30 seconds ago, but now you envy for it. Now you lust for it. You never even heard of it before, and now suddenly you expect that you should have it and think that your life is somehow cheapened because you don't have it. And James says, when that's the way your mind is calibrated, when your soul is calibrated to expect all of those things, you start trying to graft a relationship with stuff in this world that puts you at odds with God. Jesus talked about this when he talked about how you couldn't serve and love both God and mammon, which is the idol that represented wealth and worldly wealth. And people translate that all the time and say, well, yeah, money's the root of all evil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the love of mammon, the worship of stuff is the antithesis of the worship of God. And you can't do both things. And James is just articulating the same point here. He's saying, when that stuff is driving in your core, when your temptations have given to a point where you're dreaming, fantasizing, lusting after things, murdering people literally or figuratively in your heart because you don't feel like you have something, it creates a lust and desire for things that are in this world that pushes you away from the heart of God. Now, this thing about jealousy is a, a really interesting 
piece of the scripture. Don't you know the scripture says that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. And people are all over the map on what they believe that means. Some say, oh, it's like when he breathed into us his spirit, and now we are spirit in our core, and that we get jealous and envy because of that, so be aware of that. Some say it it aligns with some of the Old Testament scriptures where God identifies himself as a jealous God for our love, for our affection, for our attention, doesn't want to share us. It's all over the map. What I do know is famously, some person you may have heard of named Oprah, uh, heard this in a, in, a, in a sermon once, and she's quoted, I, I, I listened to, to this years back, she's quoted as saying, well, if God is jealous, then I never, I don't want God. She wasn't obviously listening critically, but it, it offended her at such a way because she had dealt with jealous people and, and been in abusive relationships before and thought, oh, that's abusive. But the picture is simply one of either two things. One, that it's the thing in us that comes out in an unhealthy way, desiring other things, or it's the thing that God has for us, wanting our best for us and not wanting us to experience the pain that comes from chasing after things that take us away from his heart. He's jealous for us. We sing that song, he is jealous for me. Why? Because he cares deeply for us to receive his best. It's not negative. I have to read critically, or at least listen in church. (laughs) Verse 6, if you're a highlighter, you would probably want to highlight this in your Bible because it's pretty amazing. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. Wow. He gives us more grace. I don't even know. This just blows me away about God. Apparently, there are volumes to what he does. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Not God loved the world. He so loved the world. There's a volume. There's a depth. There's an amount that is an overwhelming, overflowing. When 1 John uh, chapter 3, and he says, God, uh, he lavished his love. How great is the love the Father had for you that he lavishes on us. And here's James saying, he gives us more grace. Not just the grace we'd experienced so far, but when we're in the tension, when we're in the battle, when we're in the war, when we're battling temptation, when there's something out there that's pulling us away from the heart of God, he's like, here's some more grace. You need, you need more. You have access to a wealth and an amount and a provision that's greater than what you've experienced so far. That's pretty cool. Some of us are like, dude, that grace is sufficient. He's like, yeah, but he gives us more grace. It's abundant, it's excessive, it's lavish, it's available. That's pretty awesome. That's why the scripture says he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil. We're gonna dive into that in a second and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wow, did you see that? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's a reciprocating relational peace that James explains when we move away from the things that are ensnaring us, when we move away from the temptations, when we move away from those things, when we move closer to God, we actually get more grace, more of God, more we can experience more. He draws closer to us. That's crazy. That's amazing. James articulates three enemies that we face through this passage, it's awesome. It's very clear. He says, hey, the first enemy that we're going to see, the first one that we face is ourselves. He says, you're gonna, there's a battle that's going on within yourself. The second one he says you're going to face is the world. You're going to face the world. The world's going to try to set your expectations. It's going to try to set uh, what you think you should have. It's going to try to lean into in that. And the last one that he says, and we're going to land on that in a second, is he says the devil. He says, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. He says, you're going to face actual enemies. You're going to face that temptation. You're going to face that trouble. You're going to have to resist. You're going to have to remove yourself from that situation. You're going to have to stop going after the things that are ensnaring you, that are trapping you. And then if you jump all the way to the end, he says one more thing that I think is really incredible. Verse 17 of chapter 4, he goes, And anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. If you're a highlighter, I just didn't want to miss this piece. I don't know if that hits you, if you have to read that and maybe in a different version. Let me give you a different version. In the message, paraphrase, it says it this way. It says, in fact, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that for you is evil. 
Speaking of temptation, temptation isn't just don't run after the things you shouldn't run after. Don't get ensnared by the things you should get ensnared by. It's also when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. Some of us have been feeling pretty good about ourselves in terms of temptation going, yeah, I'm not messing around with some of the temptation I know I shouldn't mess around with. And James goes, oh, by the way, just in case this part was unclear for you, it's not just what you shouldn't do. It's knowing what you should do and doing that also. Someday I'll unpackage that way, way more. But for time's sake, I'll just let that sit in your soul today. So how do we deal with temptation? What's the life hack? It looks a little something like this. The first thing we got to do is resist it. No compromising. Resist, resist, resist. Run in the opposite direction of the thing that tends to tempt you. And the thing that tempts you isn't necessarily the thing that tempts someone else the same way. So don't get judgmental of the thing that someone else is dealing with. Worry about the thing that you're dealing with. For you, you may never struggle with alcohol. And so you may have liberty there in ways that the biblical model gives you liberty to do, but someone else may struggle with that and they got to run. And when I'm running away from alcohol, because that's the thing that might tempt me, I don't get to look at you and go, I got to judge your life or how you're doing. I just got to run from the thing that is my issue. And I can't put my issue on everybody else. Resist. Don't compromise. So let me ask you this. How do you resist the devil? James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. How do you resist the devil? It's an interesting thing to think about. I was spending some time this week just thinking about how do we resist the enemy? What does that look like? I know the first thing is I don't, you know, I don't put myself in tough situations, but the reality is you want to win in a fight against the devil. I think sometimes we do one of two things when it comes to the enemy. We either give him too much credit or not enough. Either the devil did everything bad that ever happened to us, or he's some weak, like, mockery of an enemy. And, and we're just like, ah, you know, I just stomp on the devil every day. And he's like, we just don't give him any, like, anything, or else, like, you know, the, it's raining outside. The devil is ruining my party. Like, we're not sure exactly what level of credit and authority to give to the devil. So just kind of depending on your frame of reference or how you were raised or your cultural background, you interact in one of those two extremes, oftentimes, he's either did everything or he's got nothing. The reality is the scripture tells us he's in control of things on earth right now. And he is roaming around looking for whom he can devour like a lion. That he has something powerful in him. That he has greater power than a human. That he has authority and has some ability here on earth to get into our worlds and, and cause destruction and harm. And he wants you to fail. He wants to destroy your life. And if you have zero interaction with the devil, you're probably not doing anything impactful. If you don't have zero interaction with the demonic, I should say, then you're, you're probably not doing anything powerful. He's just leaving you alone because you're on your path to fail all by yourself. He doesn't need to help you along that path or send any of his stuff to mess with you in that way. So there is some tension here. So let me talk about resisting the devil just for a few minutes. I was thinking about there's a boxing thing about to happen, not the mockery that was this weekend. Another mockery's coming. And there's a UFC fighter and an actual boxer who's undefeated and probably, whether you like him or not, the greatest skilled boxer of at least our current time. Some of you are just like, I already am hating you for talking about this. But let's talk about this. Just in theory. There is no earthly reason that the UFC fighter should get into the ring with the rules completely stacked against him, except for the payday. He's getting paid, so he's doing it. But he's getting into the ring with someone who is an expert at his field, and he's not an expert at that field. So the way you don't get beat up by someone who's an expert at that field is you don't get in the ring. You don't engage. You don't go into that environment. Here's the thing. It is hard to spend all week in the ring 
dancing around with temptation, dancing around with the enemy, dancing around with him, and then try to beat him up at the end of the week and win. If you're letting your mind go places it shouldn't go all week long and then you get back to the end of the week and you're like, here's the temptation moment, you've been already tenderized. You've already been weakened. Stop getting in the ring with him. He's too skilled. He's too gifted at hitting you where you're weak, at moving to, to take you down. It's, it's funny. I, uh, I'm not sure. Is there, does Krispy Kreme exist out here? I keep talking about food, but we're talking about temptation. Does it exist out here? Have you guys been to Krispy Kreme? So I, I used to go to uh, Krispy Kreme. <clears throat> I mean, I know someone who went to Krispy Kreme once upon a time. And they told me that when you walk in, they just hand you a donut, a hot one, right as you walk in. You walk in and they just pop one off and they're like, here, eat this while you decide what you want. Right? Why do they give you that donut? They don't give you that donut because they love you, because they care about you, because they like you. They give you that donut because they know once you get a taste and you smell the aroma and the warmth of that thing just begins to melt into gooey goodness in your mouth, you're going to leave with more than you intended to walk in there with. You thought you were going to buy a dozen and take them to work, but you're going to buy three dozen, take one home, eat one in the car on the way to work, and then bring one to work. Why? Because they gave you a taste. If you walk into the fight with an expert, you're going to lose. So the scripture teaches us not to do that. It says don't mess around with it. Don't walk into the temptation. Stop seeing how close you can get to the danger and still not fail. Don't hang out on the edge of the cliff. If your issue is envy, don't spend all day fantasizing about the things you wish you had. Don't get online if you wish you had a different house and start looking at all the houses you wish you had when you know you're nowhere close to getting the house. If your issue is comparison, don't get on Facebook and look at everybody's highlight reel and think about how you wish your kids were like their kids or your life was like their life or your spouse was like their spouse. Whatever the thing is that tenderizes you, that gives the enemy the advantage, he's good at fighting in the trenches. Get out of the trenches. That's what James is trying to say. Resist. Run the other direction. Don't play around with the fire. You are not fireproof. He says you'll lose. You'll lose. Jesus modeled this for us. He modeled it for us. We saw Jesus get tempted by the enemy. We saw how this works. Matthew records it for us. He tells us that, that the first thing that Jesus did before he knew, when he knew temptation was coming, is he fasted for 40 days. He trained himself to start to learn to deny his flesh before he faced an enemy who was going to tempt him in his flesh. He didn't gorge and then go out there. He stayed away from the thing he knew that the enemy would use to try to tempt him. And he gets out into the wilderness. And in Matthew, I think it's chapter 4, we see this whole story happen. And the enemy starts by saying, don't you want this food? And Jesus is like, no, I don't want that from you. Then he says, well, don't you want to harm yourself? Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple and trust God that you'll be okay. And he says, no, I'm not tempting God and abusing the scriptures and putting expectations. Like, God, I, I'm going to jump into this trap and expect it's God's responsibility to save me. You know, I'm going to get lost here for just a second. I think I got time. But, but it's, like, it's like we throw ourselves into the lion's pit and we expect God to close the mouth of the lion's. Because we read that Daniel was saved from the lions, but we forget that Daniel got thrown in the lion's pit for serving God, for standing up for God, for sticking up for his faith, for standing firm. And when the consequences that the world tried to throw on him for sticking up for God showed up, God said no, and he closed the mouth of the lions. Daniel didn't just go, watch what God can do, woohoo, and jump into the pit. But we think it's going to work that way. And so the devil tries to tempt Jesus and says, throw yourself off and see what God can do. And he says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And then the last thing he does is he says, well, hey, takes him up to a high mountain 
I've seen the mountain. I showed you a picture of it if you were here from, from a couple weeks ago. And he looks out and he says, if you want all of this, remember he's got dominion here on earth right now. He goes, I'll give it to you. Everyone will bow down and worship you. And how does he respond? Verse 10, chapter 4, Jesus said, get away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. We follow the Jesus model. We follow the Jesus model. We tell the enemy, I'm not going to even play with it. I'm not even going to fantasize about it. I'm not going to give it a, I'm going to run the other direction. Second thing. So the first piece is, uh, is uh, resist it, don't compromise. The second thing is own it. When you blow it, own it. No playing the blame game. Come on, we love playing the blame game. I've been in, I don't know, hundreds of encounters, talking with people, couples, teenagers, adults, doesn't matter. Something wrong happened. And there's a piece where you go, yeah, I did this. And then the inevitable word comes out, but... But I did this, but they did this, or this happened, or this is why. I know I did the thing I shouldn't have done, but. Look at how James wrapped up that passage. And uh, if you go back up to verse 8, he says, So wash your hands, you sinners, and purify, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What is he saying? He's saying, own it. Stop laughing it off. Stop pretending like it's not a thing. Stop being in denial. You have to recognize when you mess up, you will mess up. So because of that, the response is you have to own it. You have to own it. I heard this story about a pastor. It involves golfing, so it must be true. <laughs> there was a pastor, and he was golfing. And he was out uh, with another guy who was a really good golfer, and uh, he wasn't a great golfer. And they're out there, and they're, they're at the driving range, and they're hitting drives. And this guy that he's with is just like, like Melvard over there, just straight down the middle, about 350 every time. All right, 320. I won't exaggerate. <laughs> right on a line. And the pastor gets up to hit his, and it's like 200, slice, 200 the other way. Right? Every time, 200, slice. And eventually the pastor looks down at his club, and he goes, these old clubs that I have, this equipment I have is just old, and it's not helpful. So the guy that he's with, we'll call him Jeff, just hypothetical. <laughs> says let me see that driver and he takes it 325 on a line right down the middle he goes seems good to me hands it back to him why'd I tell you that story because that guy said you know the moral of the story if you always blame the club you'll never change your swing if you always blame the club You'll never change your swing. And James is saying, you got to humble yourselves. You got to look at the stuff that's in you and be honest about it. You got to stop laughing it off, pretending like it's not your fault. Stop playing the blame game. Have an introspective, honest moment. If you keep hitting the same wall, if you keep making the same mistake, if you keep being stuck in the same level of temptation, you can't just say, well, that's just the thing. Or it's the fault of the, you know, if it wasn't for that person at work, if it wasn't for that whatever. Because if you keep playing the blame game, you'll never change your swing. Never change your swing. You'll never get better. You'll never improve. Too often we look at the mess and we go, God, where were you? What did you do? But we already read in James chapter 1, God's not the author of that temptation. That comes from our own desires. That comes from our own stuff. And James is saying, you got to have some introspection and you got to own it. you got to have a little humble moment here and admit you're hitting a slice on this one. And it's time to go back to the drawing board and be honest and say there's a hole in your swing. There's something you're missing. There's a behavior that you're doing over and over again. There's a hitch in your giddy-up. Whatever word connects you to that fact of owning it. The last thing is this, and <clears throat> we're almost home. You got to confess it. No hiding. You got to confess it. You got to come clean. Not just do you have to own it, you have to declare. Now, uh, about a year ago, we did a, a series called Life Apps, and we did the confession app. And if you were here, then hopefully uh, that will uh, uh, resurface something in you. If not, you can go find it online. But we talked about real confession. 
And we talked out of Numbers chapter five, when Moses uh, is getting from the, uh, from the Lord how to help the, the people understand this idea of confessing. And in Numbers chapter five, verse six, God says, say to the Israelites, when a man or a woman wrongs another in any way and is so unfaithful to the Lord. Did you catch that? When I wrong another human being, the person I've been unfaithful to is the Lord. Because I've denied the value that that human being has. I've denied that I've somehow said, God, that person is worth less than me. I can manipulate, abuse, do that. I have an inflated ego of myself and I have deflated the value of somebody else that you created and you love. He says, when a man or a woman wrongs another and in that way is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must, here's that word, confess the sin that they've committed and he must make full restitution for his wrong, add one fifth to it and give it all to the person that he's wronged. What? Confessing isn't just, I'm sorry. Confessing is I go and make it right. A biblical picture of confession the way the scriptures identify what confession is, there's more to it than I just say, I'm sorry. It's that I go and I make it right. Here's the thing. Genuine confession leads to genuine change. Genuine confession leads to genuine change. Why does James want us to confess it and to own it? Because he wants us to change. He wants us to get free. He wants us to change the behavior that's catching us, those hedonistic desires that are pulling us away from God and into conflict with one another. Why? Because he cares about the community of the family of God. He cares that we're together. He cares that we're united. He doesn't want us to be divided. <laughs> when we have secrets and things like that that are just haunting our lives, they're like splinters. And the longer that they're there, the worse it just gets. And we can't deny it and pretend like it's not a thing. If you've ever had a really bad splinter, you know. The, le the last thing that works is, oh, I'll just pretend like I don't have a splinter. It just gets worse and infected and grosser. And pretty soon the thing that was kind of secret and only you knew is now swollen and other people can see it and it affects the things that you can touch and not touch. And that's just a picture of that. So James says, you got to confess it. If you look at the end of James chapter five, verse 16, as he's wrapping up this thought, he says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. That the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. He says, you got to go to people that you've wronged and you got to find people in your circle that you trust that you can say, hey man, I'm struggling with this. Hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm getting beat up by this. I keep trying to resist the devil, but I keep falling into the trap. I keep trying to not let the world set this boundary or this expectation for me. But I got to tell you, when I'm alone and it's my, my, just in my thoughts, I'm dealing with this. When I'm, when I'm at work and I'm in this environment, I'm dealing with this. Would you, would you just, I just need to confess that and let you know. And then here, here's the, the thing. James has the audacity to say, you can expect that other person in Christ who's your brother to pray for you. And you can ask them to. Are you serious? Actually pray for me? He's like, yeah, and you can believe that in the community of the family of God, that's powerful and effective and can bring healing and restoration. Can you imagine if we got this into our hearts? Can you imagine if we got this into our souls, into our core, that this was the way to handle temptation? It's this amazing picture all throughout the scripture of God being jealous for us, caring for us, wanting us, of God as a good father who looks down at us when we're struggling with things that are taking us away from him, when we take that things that would take us out of relationship with us and says, why would you want that over me? Why would you want that over what I have for you? And for some of you this morning, you've already just been wrestling because you, as the moment I started talking about this, whatever the thing was, that's your thing has just been surfacing under the, underneath that. So I was trying to think of how to kind of just leave you in a place where you can deal with that. And I found, <laughs> I found this, and it's another pastor. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a video up here just a second. And he, he's going to just share something with you. And then as soon as he shares something with you, the worship team's going to come out, and we're going to pray. And my invitation for you is to just have an honest moment about whatever the thing is. Come on now, that's been hanging around. And let's just give that to Jesus before we leave today. Here we go. Jeremiah chapter 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. You followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. 
Remember, this is God speaking. And sometimes we think of God as like this machine up there, this, you know, with no feeling. He just judges. He just controls everything. You guys, listen to the words he uses. God is speaking to this nation and he says, I remember how devoted you were to me. But then he says in in verse 5, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Doesn't that sound like so many of our lives? Where we were so connected with God, God made things so wonderful, and then we run away towards something else. Something else entices us, and God's left there going, What did I do? My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The people committed two sins. One was they chose their sin. But I think what really broke the heart of God was that they chose their sin over Him. God's going, wait a second. So you left me, the spring of living water, to go do your own thing because you thought maybe you could dig a hole big enough and then fill it up with water so this would be a better supply? He goes, and it's a broken cistern. It doesn't even hold water. That's what temptation is. Things that draw us away from Him. Things that we choose over a love relationship. And it's not that you don't love God. You love God, right? I mean, you love God in your heart, but every once in a while there's this reality of there's this real pull from inside of you towards something that God prohibits. And you're feeling it so bad. And you're going, what is wrong with me? I know I love God. Why do I feel this way? We're going, God, I don't want to go there. And we know it's not going to fulfill We know we can't be happy outside of God. But everything in us is pulling us that way. What do we do? Here's what we do. The Bible says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. It's the idea of a person being so focused on this love relationship, you're not even noticing anything else. You don't know what else is going on in the room. You're just so focused on Jesus, so in love and so thinking about eternal things. That's the idea. We have to run toward Jesus, the author and perfecter. We have to fix our eyes on him so that all these things are dangling in front of our face, but we don't even notice it. There's one reason why you should walk away from whatever temptation you're facing right now. There's just one reason. God is better. He is. He's so much better. It's not even a comparison. God is better. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old is gone. The power and the promise is that his presence can change you. That when he draws near, when we resist the enemy and we come close to him, we don't have to be who we've always been. The promise is the presence. And when he draws near, all that stuff has to go. When we keep focused on him, when we make him the object of our adoration, not the things the world wants us to adore, freedom comes. Some of you, today is about freedom. And you just need to hear someone say, you don't have to be stuck in the stuff you've always been stuck in. God's a God of new beginnings. He's a God of new creations. He's a God of freedom. And the closer you draw to him, the scripture just told us he'll draw closer to you. And the closer he draws to you, the more transformation, the more power, the more access you have. It changes everything. And if we could get this truth in us, it could change us. It could change our families. It could change our community. It could change this family of believers. It could change the world. And that's why James is so strong with us. Just get this part right. Draw close to him, church. He'll draw close to you. And all the fights and temptations and all the wars, that stuff has to flee and it has to leave. And you can be free. So God, I pray for freedom. 
I pray for restoration. I pray for healing. I pray for redemption. I pray for transformation. I pray you would do what only you can do, that you would make all things new. I pray for our new beginning. As we walk out the door today, we don't have to be who we've always been. We are made new by your power. Do it, I pray in the name of Jesus. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Church, go with God. Have a great week. We'll see you at the same time next week, 10 a.m. Get here early enough to make sure you can park. That's all I'm saying. Otherwise, be ready to four-wheel drive it. We love you. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord.